Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. In the next episode of Meet the Committee, we sit down with Catherine Haggie, our Chair of the Financial and Fintech Committee and Tax Director at Rawlinson Hunter, together with Stuart Bell, Executive Director for Financial Markets at Standard Chartered Bank. Catherine and Stuart share their views on the committee, the market, impact of COVID-19 on the financial and banking industry and the UK-Singapore Fintech Bridge. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Haggy, International Tax Director at Rawlinson & Hunter and Chair of the Finance and Fintech Business Committee within the Chamber, and Stuart Bell, Executive Director of Financial Markets at Standard Chartered Bank and a committee member of the group as well. A very warm welcome to you both. Thanks, David. Thank you. Good morning. So, Catherine, starting with you, you've been in Singapore just over two years. What brought you here in the first place? So I had been working in London in a in a similar space, but perhaps done a little bit of uh, chopping and changing of my career for about 13 years, working out next steps, looking at uh, where where the next promotion is, perhaps. And yeah, really just assessing, assessing where I was in life. And obviously, that sort of ended up in the pub. So um I remember it, it was May time and we were in a pub in Chelsea. It was myself and a number of my bosses. I don't quite know how it happened. Um, and randomly he said to me, you should go to Singapore, which was a little alarming at the time. Rawlinson and Hunter in Singapore was at that time doing quite a lot of compliance, had a strong accountancy function. Um, was just developing its trust function and its tax area was very compliance driven. So I was a little bit confused by the suggestion and couldn't quite see how I would fit in as a UK tax advisor in, in, in the Singapore office. There was no role and we just sort of said, well, well, if you're keen, we'll try and work it out. So I, I showed a bit of interest and six months later, I was on a plane. <laughs> Great start. Is there much difference between the tax planning in the UK and Singapore? I know you've, you've recently had, and I would urge all of our listeners, you get a really good podcast on some of this, but as just a, as, as a high level, you know, what was, what were some of your learnings that you went through on your journey? Yeah, I mean, they're hugely different. They're hugely different. So the UK law is incredibly old, well-established case law. You've got so many practitioners so many qualifications that you can do in it you know you can go on forever and I am a UK qualified tax advisor I am doing more qualifications as we speak so I was sort of part of the role was to give UK tax advice and is to give UK tax advice in Singapore so being in the Singapore time zone and helping those people here um, and in Asia generally who have UK interests and that's, you know, that's a significant part of what I do. So, so that bit ticks on, which is nice and reassuring that all the qualifications I've been doing were not for nothing. Um, but the Singapore advisory is is different. The legislation is a lot shorter, to say the least, and perhaps a little less well established from a case law point of view and, and perhaps continually developing, I would say, in a way that the UK case law 
or the UK law on tax develops more from a case point of view. Singapore is probably a little bit more proactive with with new initiatives. So keeping on top of the Singapore stuff is is a slightly different approach and there's a lot of um, industry discussion and um, industry events which enable us to keep on top of the changes um, as well as good interaction with the MAS and the IRAS which is something that you would well I've, I've not experienced to the same degree in, in the UK. Now that sounds really, really interesting. Great to hear what we're still learning too, which is fantastic. And you've, you've been involved with the committee, well, you've taken over the chair just over a year ago, which has been great. Could you just sort of give our listeners a bit of an overview around some of the topics that the committee delves into and why you got involved in the first place? Yeah, so I suppose my reason reason for involvement initially and on an ongoing basis is Singapore is, I mean, it is a small place. We know that. And the industries can be quite small as well. So particularly in my sort of finance sector and and that the tax advisory and the trust industry, there are a small number of players on balance. I mean, to give you an example, there are only 60 trust licensed companies in Singapore. Um, and that's a huge part of our business. So you quickly get to know your network and that's hugely helpful because you can share such a huge amount. But what the chamber does is it opens that up a little bit. For me, it opens networks up to different people across different industries where there's different learnings and basically a wider audience that can be reached from, from your immediate circle. So that's one of the key aspects that I take from the chamber and from the committee as well. So we've got representatives on the committee from lots of the big banks. We've got wealth managers, we've got financial advisors, financial planners, uh, we've got lawyers, tax advisors across a huge breadth of, of, you know, the biggest, biggest firms, biggest magic circle law firms and the small business too, the small lawyers who've bravely gone out on their own. So so just on the committee, I think we've got a real depth of different people. Um, and that's probably representative of what the chamber has more widely. And I haven't mentioned the fintech side of things there. Uh, we've got a huge fintech representation on, on the committee. Um, and I'll save that for Stuart to talk about. Excellent. Uh, you know, the, the financial sector is such an integral part of Singapore's ambition to uh, drive its sort of smart nation agenda. Creating that sort of smart financial centre through fintech and innovation, it, you know, the committee must be right at the heart of, of driving Singapore's agenda as well as bringing the British business community with it. What are, what are sort of the key themes that you're seeing that are coming through the committee that our members can, can get involved with? Yeah, so I mean, on the fintech side, it, it's very interesting because we're obviously in in completely different times. Um, but just to give you a bit of a feel, generally, in 2019, we were able to join the chamber hosting and, and the DIT hosting events where fintechs were perhaps coming over from from the UK as part of the fintech festival, which is held annually in November, um, and, and a huge event put on. Put on in Singapore. Cross fingers, these things can happen again. We were able to really be that softer connection between the UK fintechs that are thinking about coming over to Singapore without committing these organisations to signing up to big initiatives which big organisations are perhaps publicising. So 
I would like to say that we are we are making ourselves available as experienced professionals in the fintech industry across a, a broad range of, of expertise just to really have that first conversation. And again, as mentioned, we've got such tight, close networks in Singapore that if we have the right conversation, then hopefully we can lead the fintech to the right people that can really help them to establish in Singapore, get the funding they need in Singapore or, or whatever it is, whatever their agenda is that they're seeking to drive. So we're not trying to particularly push our services on them. Obviously, all of the all of the committee members do work, <laughs> work for corporates largely and, and do want to uh, develop their own networks and develop their own business. But I think we see it as as time that we're prepared to give to hopefully enable that first step into Singapore. Oh, that's really, that's really excellent to hear and, and great to see sort of that, that trade piece as well. Stuart, I mean, turning to you, I mean, a little bit about you, how, how did, what brought you to Singapore in the first place? I was going to say a similar story, but I, I too began my career in London. Uh, I originally studied engineering, but was drawn to the, uh, shall we say, the bright lights of, of, of the city of London. So I worked for a number of different investment banks in the city for about 17 years. And then really the opportunity came up, flew out here and uh, loved it absolutely since the first day. Uh, I've been here almost seven years now, seven years in Asia. I had uh, two years in Hong Kong, but immensely rewarding from a cultural as well as a, a kind of professional perspective. It is a, a small place, Singapore, but its, it's reach is, is very, you know, very large, uh, global, really. It's, it's a very much a center of ASEAN and uh, Asia Pacific from a, from a banking perspective alongside Hong Kong. Really interesting to hear that, and especially sort of as you mentioned, sort of being a, a major hub. I know this sort of we were. I think we're all aware that the UK has entered sort of five fintech bridge agreements with other fintech hubs, which include Singapore. And this does create a, a great opportunity, doesn't it, between you know not only with the SG UK partnership for the future, but the com- companies that are based here and the expertise that we have here, and as well as in the UK. How does the committee sort of really harness and support the activity that's happening between both countries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think it is certainly a hub, a leading hub. And I think that's partly because it's a very well-regulated market. It has a strong regulatory and legal framework, but also that the regulator is open to listen and is relatively dynamic. So it, it adapts to emerging business models, which really does suit, I think, the fintech space. Additionally, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, or MASS, does sponsor sandboxing which is a area or technical solution to allow fintechs to experiment, try business models, get up to speed, and, and really sort of incubate the, the first few steps along the journey. And I think you touched on the, the links with the UK there. Absolutely. I mean, Singapore obviously has historical links with the UK, but there is also, also a very strong network and cultural resonance, I think, between the two countries. Not only language and legal, but uh, for example, there is a cricket pitch in the middle of Singapore. Absolutely. Where do you see the main opportunities? Is that sort of startup environment and that sort of thinking, is it the education system here in Singapore that's sort of driving a lot of that agenda and providing lots of opportunity? I think Singapore, given its size, relatively small, it's almost the perfect country to actually start with innovative business models. It's a well-educated, well-connected population. English is spoken widely. As I say, the legal framework's very sound. So it's, it's almost a, a, like the, the ideal place to experiment and try businesses. If they work here, 
then you can adapt them and, and scale up in, in some larger markets. Certainly, technology, there isn't lots of land for you know, large industrial or agricultural businesses. So high-tech technology firms are definitely encouraged uh, and, and promoted uh, as part of the, the ecosystem within Singapore. And just to add to that, if I may, you only have to look at what the MAS and the Singapore government is doing at the moment to deal with the fallout of COVID-19. And and you look at the, so there's been four budgets now this year. The first one was the, the, the normal budget that happened in February, and then there's been three subsequent budgets all around COVID-19. And in those budgets, we're seeing so much about educating Singapore particularly around the technology space. So the government is providing financial support to educate Singaporeans further, using this arguable downtime to really, really pump some investment into their people, which is only going to move in the technology direction, as far as I can see. You know, they're they're conscious of these startups, particularly around the fintech, area and that perhaps funding's been pulled as a result of of covid and and that they don't want these opportunities to lapse so again government are matching private investment funding in order to make sure that these industries are still kept going in amongst everything everything that's happening and of course you know we our whole industry is is coming to lean on fintech and and it's about who's leading the way you know who's who's at the front here and i think Singapore is conscious of its positioning and maintaining its positioning um, when we have this huge technology drive, uh, which we're seeing right now. I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, you know, with, with all of the packages, as you mentioned, that the government's provided businesses to help them to maintain their operations and keep people employed and sort of weather the storm through COVID, you know, the MAS have been very proactive in terms of promoting their, their in it together and their care package for fintechs during COVID-19. Do you feel that sort of that look and that sort of nurturing of sort of ideas and technology is a way that Singapore has almost using COVID-19 as an advantage to try testing different pieces of technology that perhaps it wouldn't have done had COVID not been such a huge influence? I think my view is it's probably not only Singapore. I think it's it's everywhere. And I think it's companies themselves taking that initiative to do that. Whereas... There may have been traditional clients and customers that would have insisted on documents and envelopes for the paper to sign and back and forth. I think everyone's had to adapt to this digital world for the last couple of months so that people are downloading apps, people are doing Zoom. Everyone's becoming much more literate in this digital way of working. Yeah, I would agree. And I think I think Singapore, if we focus on the banking sector, for example, you know, what's going to keep a bank surviving this is going to be its transition into fintech you know digital payments are of course what we're entirely leaning on at the moment and you know when was the last time that anybody dared to touch a button of a cash machine it's very important for that industry amongst many other aspects of course which the banks are dealing with but my my view is that because as both Stuart and I've alluded to the MAS and the government generally are prepared to listen to to the corporates who are driving things forward and and legislate accordingly you know it's it's a sufficiently small and dynamic system 
that enables change to happen relatively quickly. Um, you know, again, if we compare things to the UK, getting getting papers through Parliament is it, it's a process, and the way that Singapore is structured in that sense means, in my view, that things can happen a lot more quickly. And of course, its small size helps as well because you're just not dealing with the same kind of volume. My experience of the MAS certainly is that if they've got an initiative that they are seeking to drive, they really put everything behind it and and you really see quite quick results. I mean, just stepping away from fintech momentarily, I do a lot of work in the fund management industry um, and there are tax incentives around the fund management industry, which really the take up is is incredible the structure is developing every every application we make that there's a new tweak or or a new learning from it but you know it's certainly bringing fund management into singapore and and that's a drive which the mas has has been pushing to get employment in the industry up as well and you can really see the results so, so I really feel the same is, is true of fintech, that um, MAS are backing it, government's backing it, people trust the government, and, and therefore they know that, that this is a safe environment in which to drive their initiatives forward. Listening to you both, this is really interesting because it, it feels like you're a committee at the forefront of complete disruption. You know, not not only from sort of a, you know an investment and access to funds perspective, but also the sort of the, almost the future of retail banking and how that's going to take shape and the benefits to the consumer and the cost base and you know being real real disruptors of some quite you know some some huge traditional brands. Is is, is that is that the feeling that you're getting as well? I, I think I think that's a really interesting question. It's interesting because I think a lot of the banks, shall we call them, there are some banks that have been present in Singapore for over 160 years. The size and the shape of the building may be different, but in some cases, the addresses are the same. So that's a huge generational level of trust that's been built up. And and on the other side, you have new ideas, new disruption, um, things like payments, remittance, now looking at savings and investments, and and as as you alluded to, digital banks or or challenger neo neo banks starting up. So it, we are at this point where you have these two somewhat very different institutions or or organisations coming to, coming to meet. And I think traditional banking has always been at the forefront of pushing technology. I can remember when I started in the in the city in the in the late nineties that the atmosphere was always I need the fastest computer, the most powerful processes. There was a real kind of arms race, if you like, in technology even then. And I think that's still the case now. I think from a customer's perspective, they're not really I'd say they they don't care so much whether it's a traditional bank or a new neo bank. What they care about is excellent customer service. And who can provide that is really the, the chase that's on now. So very interesting place to be and and a very interesting time to be in that place. Really, I I would agree that it it is an exciting time. And and I think what what is particularly interesting around the current circumstances is that technology has been pushed upon us in a way that perhaps we didn't anticipate. And those organisations that are 
a little bit further ahead, we'll, we'll find the whole transition an awful lot easier. And I think for the banks, you know, they were, they were certainly already there or, or getting there. And they have been pushed forward further, which will be interesting to see how that impacts the rest of their sort of slightly older traditional business, which we should continue to be mindful of. You know, the banks have had to diversify and, and, and change their mentality a little bit um, because of the way the markets have, have shifted. And, you know, we've all been completely used to working in offices and, and that's obviously no longer the case. So, so they've had to change probably a lot more than the average because of their risk profiling, the, the formalities and the legislation that they've got to keep up with. But what I'm what I'm trying to get to, I think, is what happens after all of this. We've got the technology out there. Now we've got to maintain it. We've got to see if that side of the business generates enough revenue. Have we left our more traditional sides behind? So again, focusing on my part of the world, is the wealth management part of the bank still being looked after to the same extent? Um, I think it'll be it'll be a very interesting fallout when things settle. Um, on the other side of this. It's something you can't see. I'm, I'm nodding vigorously to both of your answers. I think it's a really important part of what the Chamber's here to do, right, is to, is to keep people abreast of the latest sort of techno- technological advancements and how the industry is adapting to that and how disruption is playing its part. Bit of a bit of a silly question, I guess, but why is Singapore such an attractive place for a fintech or a financial services disruptor to come and test bed to set up i mean we talked about some of the, the sandboxing opportunities available through mas but why why is singapore such an important place to, to do this i think some of the feedback i hear from fintechs that are established in singapore is very much it's a access not only as a market in itself but it really provides access to the rest of asia so it's like a, a launching point to roll out to the other asian markets Australia, Hong Kong, China, potentially. So it has the right ingredients to nurture and build fintechs, but also the advantage that you can then network and expand pretty quickly from Singapore as a base. Yeah, and my I would agree entirely, but the other huge aspect in my mind is the regulation. It's just super clear. The government set out the rules and we work within them and you know, if they if you want to challenge them, you ask the question, they confirm or deny and, and legislate accordingly. But, you know, to have that structure within which you know you're safe to operate in this region is hugely important. You know, the fear of going into many of our surrounding countries and, and, and making a an error which could have really significant consequences it is quite significant. So I think to, to get established here and, and get your base in Asia with a solid regulatory system and then consider jumping off the platform to the surrounding countries is a is a solid approach. Just just taking that thread a bit a bit further forward as well. I mean if you look at a country like Myanmar that's gone from predominantly cash economy to a, a you know double digit mobile cash economy, it's almost as if they've sort of missed credit cards and you know having their having their debit accounts. It's, it's quite quite it's quite interesting. Do you think that the chamber can work more closely to provide an opportunity for not only our members but companies that are coming over from the UK to have access to the wider ASEAN market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think it's limited to fintechs either. I think 
you know, for a business that is established in the UK and looking to launch into Asia, I think your natural starting point is going to be Singapore. So, so phase one, established here. Phase two, start start jumping and using using resources such as chambers to to take the next step. Something just to just to add to that, I think what's interesting the ASEAN region. It, it's one of the most diverse club of countries in the world. I think there's only ten members, but the, the the breadth of whether it be GDP per capita, population density, or or, or even population is is vast between you know Singapore at one end on some of those scales and and Indonesia and the Philippines on another. It, it really is uh, a lot of variety. Sat here in Singapore, it feels like the mood music is suggesting this is a very, very, very safe place to look at your investments, to look at the opportunity to, you know, have disruptive technology. It looks like there will be a fallout from, you know, what's happening in Hong Kong. Is that your view? Is that something you can share? Do you see Singapore as being able to capitalise on on what's happening politically between Beijing and Hong Kong? For the duration of my time here, you know, we've seen, I think, Singapore take steps which Hong Kong hasn't necessarily been able to keep up with. Again, going back to the fund industry um, and the trust industry generally, Singapore has really established some clear legislation which people are comfortable operating with and really driven its fund industry with these tax incentives. And, and Hong Kong have been talking about establishing this for as long as I've known. And for whatever reason, nothing's actually passed. So I think, you know, we we see its legal systems as, as not quite so streamlined in, in a similar way that I was talking about with, with the UK. But I think one of the huge things which has been affecting Hong Kong is the physical physical street protesting, which has been going on for a long time and is still going on. It might not be in the press to quite, well, it's come back into the press in the last few weeks, but it hasn't been in the press so much because COVID has entirely taken over everybody's lives. But the disruption that that causes on the street, I think, is is huge. And in a sense, the way that, that I, I personally feel Hong Kong is going is, you know, we've all known that it, it's heading towards China to some extent because of, the, because of the 1997 agreement. But I think to have some more stability, and you could argue it's not stable because Chinese laws are, laws are coming in, but to have some known boundaries, some known quantities to be working with will actually benefit Hong Kong, in my view, because the the instability on the streets at the moment and and the bad press that it's getting in this transition period is just leaving everybody in an uncertain place. And and actually, with, with Chinese laws coming in, it will push a huge number of people out. We know that, particularly expats. It will push certain industries out, but it will remove some uncertainty and and will put Hong Kong in a place um, which I don't know what that place looks like but it will put Hong Kong in a place which is known and I think that is huge because it will in my eyes 
continue to be a separate gateway to China. And actually, a lot of the world will want that and will want that that entry point. So yeah, it, it's a changing time for Hong Kong, but it's not necessarily a bad thing for it. And which industries survive and which industries don't will be interesting. And the industries that don't survive in Hong Kong, I think Singapore probably is quite well placed to capture. But um, yeah, it, it will continue to be a, a China entry point. You, t- you talked about Singapore being the gateway to, to ASEAN. If, if you were looking at setting up a fintech, certainly in Asia, I personally, I would certainly be looking at Singapore with, with ASEAN with its 400 plus million population as an opportunity for growth rather than the uncertainty of China and going into Hong Kong. Do you share a similar sort of perspective to that? Establishing a fintech in Hong Kong has the advantage of you have 1.3 billion people next door as your potential market. Singapore, much smaller population, but access to the ASEAN market and beyond. So depending on the type of fintech, the, the, the business model, Hong Kong may or may not be more suitable. I guess the future of the retail bank is going to be massively different, isn't it, from what we were discussing on this call earlier. And, and, and there must be sort of opportunities for companies that have got ideas in tech. I'm trying to draw out where you feel some of the opportunities may lie for British businesses. Absolutely. And I think I think you touched on a, a couple of good points there. I mean, the idea of handling notes and coins and, and handing them to people and receiving them from, from other people, you know, is that something people are going to be comfortable doing going going ahead? So so one of the topics we're looking at is around central bank digital currencies. So replacing fiat coins and notes with digital money. That's something that I think many governments are looking at. China's actually probably slightly ahead. So that's that's an emerging technology that could really be finding a bit of a bit of a home post COVID. And then also you've got the, if you like, the banking, the unbanked. So how do you get the, the rural populations in many of the markets in, in Asia and, and and further afield into the ecosystem where paper money and coins aren't preferred? Um, you know, the, these are these are two interesting areas that I think people are working on, people are trying to solve, but I think there's still opportunities to really come up with the right business model. People are definitely experimenting. Really interesting. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britjam.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at